ad revenue is back, and that's good news for Meta. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma. Asit, good to see you again. Deidre, so good to see you. Advertising is back, sort of, I think. Yet this has been such an interesting week to, to look at earnings. On yesterday's show, uh, Ricky and Nick, they covered Alphabet. Strong ad revenue, strong search revenue, uh, strong story for YouTube. We've got a similar story today with Meta. Gap advertising revenue up 24% year over year. You know, I think sometimes we get distracted by all of the other things that Alphabet and Meta do, but these are still these are ad businesses. That's where that's where the money is. This is only one quarter, though. How should we be thinking about this? I'm I'm happy, but I'm I'm a little I'm cautious. How are you? I think I'm cautious too, Deidre. I think this quarter reflects businesses that were previously shell shocked last year have slowly adjusted to the business environment. They're spending a little more. So the caution is being cautiously pulled back. Businesses have to spend on advertising after all, right? To raise revenues and bring in the profits. So I think that's good, but we're not out of the woods yet. As you know, the macro environment is so volatile. Interest rates are still sky high, seem to be ever climbing. Inflation is persistent. Student loans are starting up again, student loan payments. So um, with this uncertain environment for discretionary spending among consumers, I wonder too, you know, for me, Two data points make a trend. Let's see one more quarter like this among all these players, and I might feel a little more comfortable. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, the GDP numbers came out today, and they came out higher than expected. But consumers are are feeling the pinch. The savings rate is going down, so it'll be interesting to see holiday season and the impact on that for for these companies as well. I mean, when when even Snap is is getting solid ad revenue, I start to think, okay, maybe maybe this is maybe this is something real. I know, right? Even Snap's making money. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Must have been a good quarter for advertisers. Well, so we've got the money coming in, but it, this is Mark Zuckerberg's year of efficiency. And on the earnings call, he made it clear, you know, he st- he wants to keep that going. He likes where things have been, and yet, uh, this is the huge and yet is of course Reality Labs. They are still spending like crazy on this. Uh, Three point seven billion dollar loss uh, this quarter. They've said they're going to keep on spending. It's necessary for them to build out uh, AR and VR, but. At some point, at some point, this has to stop, right? At some point, you can't just keep spending without any any real benefit to it. You have to stop at some point. I mean, what a couple hundred million dollars in revenue, and then as you point out, a three point seven billion dollar loss. What is working in Mark Zuckerberg's favor, of course, is that tremendous margin that comes from the advertising business and the fact that. Uh, in tightening the belt in so many other spaces, I think he's bought a lot of goodwill among shareholders, uh, making the whole of the business more efficient. Gives him some leeway to continue with the losses, even though they're significant in this one area. But uh, you know, I think at some point uh, you'll have to show a better return on all this investment for shareholders to countenance it any further. Yeah, and I think one of the things that that the analysts are looking for that came up on the call was, okay, you're spending all this money. 
is this transferable to other areas? Is this benefiting things? And CFO uh, Susan Lee, she wasn't really, she didn't quite give them the the answer I thought they were looking for. She said most of the spends on headcount and costs related, related to directly to Reality Lab. So it's pretty clear that what they're doing is directly related to just the AR and VR, and it's not really going to go over and help the family of apps, which is, of course, where the money is made. I think they actually can get some benefit uh, out of that. And Deidre, I was surprised, too, at the answer that Susan Lee gave. So, when you think about Reality Labs, you and I, and I think most members, think of a company within Meta that's trying to build out the metaverse, is trying to build a virtual reality immersive uh, environment through the use of the devices, uh, their audiovisual devices, and then you know some augmented reality, which is sort of blending a physical and a virtual environment. But the things that they're investing in are wide, they're vast. If you ever have a chance to watch some videos on what exactly goes on and all these research dollars into Reality Labs, there's much investment in sort of kinetic experiences. There's much investment in understanding what happens when the human face smiles or frowns or raises an eyebrow. And that has a direct application to the avatar business that Meta is in. They're working on avatars. Once they get those to a super realistic uh, degree of competency, so you and I, because we're recording this audio in, in Zoom, I'm looking at your pleasant face just now, and I can see you, you just re reacted with a smile. Now imagine our avatars that can interpret simultaneously these micro expressions and really give this realistic in environment to both of us that, that we are. In, in you know, like the synchronous communication environment, you actually don't need a VR experience for that. You don't even need an AR experience for that. That can conceivably occur over two laptops if you can make the avatars very realistic. And some of this investment, you can see how they just poured it over to other places. It doesn't have to exist solely within virtual reality. And I wish he had talked a little bit more about all the money that they've poured into bridging this divide between physical environments and virtual environments. So what if the metaverse fails? I think there's some yield there. And I've said this before um, here on Motley Fool Money. I think business collaboration could be big for Meta. Now, whether any of this gets commercialized or not truly is anyone's guess. I say if you're pumping in tens of billions of dollars over a multi-year period, there's got to be something that can translate and give you some decent revenue out of this. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, and yeah, I want to talk about the business aspect a little bit later. But first, I want to talk about the the gear. Meta has not had a great track record with devices. You had Facebook phone uh, that didn't work. You had uh, you have the Meta portal that hasn't really that did not take off. But when we were at uh, the Motley Fool One event earlier this week, uh, our colleague Kirsten Garrett, she said she was looking at the Apple Vision Pro as one of the things that she thinks is going to be kind of transformative. I think Zuckerberg would prefer that she, of course, say MetaQuest or the, the Ray-Ban smart glasses. But there's this pressure right now to deliver the thing that goes on our face. And do you think that Apple or Meta is is going to be the winner in this space? Obviously, Meta's device is far far cheaper, uh, and they've had more more swings here to to make this work. But it's Apple. How are you thinking about these two? Man, Deidre, it's Thursday. 
What you throwing such a hard question? The, the weekend is like right in my sight. <laughs> okay, let's see. Apple, you know, their device is like seven times more expensive yeah. than the Meta Three, but it's a beautiful device from what we've seen, and we know that it's going to deliver an unparalleled experience in some respects. Until we can actually try it out, I can't say that it's going to be a game changer or not. But certainly. Ditching the controller, which you use with the, the MetaQuest, to something where you can just use hand gestures to control a, a pointer object like a mouse. I think that's so Apple uh, delivering this bespoke experience. I'm sure the form factor is going to be elegant. It, it already looks great. And the experiences are going to be immersive and they're going to be fun. We already know all this about Apple. Uh, the thing here that strikes me as a little different than other great products they've rolled out is just the delta of the, the next best product and this new product. I mean, it's an even, even bigger gulf than when the iPhone first came out versus the, the phones you could buy in the market. So I do question the first generation, how much uptake it'll have at $3,500 per pair. But what we will see is sort of a trickle down effect. So Meta will try to pack more features into its next versions. And Apple will also work on second and third generation devices where, as they've done in the past, they'll, they'll give you some lower price points with fewer features. At some point, the two of those converge. So which ultimately wins out? If I had to, to bet, I'd have to bet Apple <laughs> just because of their track record with devices. And you know what yeah. you point out about Meta stumbles but I still feel that we shouldn't underestimate uh, Meta's ability to make their device more widespread in the marketplace. Let's go Apple. Well, and I think it's interesting too that that Apple they thought potentially about doing smart glasses. They decided that that wasn't the first swing for them. You know, we, we've seen Google Glass. We've Meta keeps trying to make this happen. A snap that we talked about earlier didn't didn't do well with it. The smart glasses thing, I. It's it's still hard for me to figure out that one. I might I think I'm more interested in the in the fully immersive headsets as as a real changer. But we'll see. Yeah, the the, the Ray Bans are are sleek. They are sleek. Meta partnered with Ray Bans parent, and you have actually sort of a fun form factor for a lot of people. And I do think since the last iterations of smart glasses that hit the marketplace. There seems to be more acceptance and and fewer privacy concerns, so I wouldn't be surprised to see this sell pretty well. This is again not like a VR or or even mixed reality type device. It's simply smart glasses, but you can take video, you can communicate with an AI agent through the day if you want. Uh, they look pretty sleek, not for me, but I can definitely see a generation of um, consumers. Maybe buying up, and I believe the price point is just like two ninety nine entry point, Deidre, somewhere yeah, around there. Yeah, so not super yeah, they're expensive. not too expensive. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned AI agent, and that brings us into talking a little bit about uh, business, which you teased earlier. Because one of the things that Meta's doing, you've talked about making the avatars. They're now creating AI for businesses and these these agents, these experiences. So the way they see it is basically every business is going to have an AI for customer interactions. And we're already talking to bots probably more than we'd like to, but this is supposed to be better. But I have this question. This is one of the things I was really thinking about with this. So if I'm spending my time with Meta to develop my AI agent, maybe I'm putting... Uh, 
putting things into a large language model. I'm really working on this thing. This is still, I mean, you've got multiple apps. You've got like WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook, but it's still a walled garden. Are companies going to have to invest in creating multiple AI avatar experiences across multiple like customer input points, multiple walled gardens? It's, it all seems like a lot of work for companies and a lot of money too. A lot of work, a lot of money, and uncertain return. Yeah. I think companies are going to pick one uh, model and work with that on one cloud provider uh, or maybe one uh, portal. So Snowflake offers a portal for training. You can actually work directly with NVIDIA, uh, depending on your industry. But I think that's more of what companies will do, whether it's Meta or another company. They'll choose a training model, a large language model. They'll figure out, okay, with this provider, my data set's secure, and then they'll experiment. And no, no one is going to create multiple uh, bots at, at this point in time on multiple platforms unless that ROI is there. If it doesn't improve your customer service, if it actually degrades it because you've got different bots giving different <laughs> answers, you're not going to keep investing. So I, I, I like that Meta is pushing this, and I like that their large language model is open source. They're sort of kneecapping the idea that other large language models will be proprietary and businesses will spend uh, only on those. They're sort of uh, using a playbook they've used many times before. That's smart business on their part, but it does further you know, the AI cause. It makes it easier for people to innovate. So there's some uh, mercenary uh, good goodwill that uh, Meta is creating out there where their particular language, large language model is, is concerned. But I'm going to push back on that a little bit, just because of the cloud thing. So, because companies, when they when we when they were first moving to the cloud, they generally picked one horse. Now, uh, I've been listening to to our friends uh, Tim White and Tim Byers talk a little bit about this. Now we're seeing more multi-cloud, where companies are sort of expanding out. So, I'm wondering if over time you start with one AI, but then maybe for you have different different needs, different purposes, and maybe it becomes you know, multi-AI the same way it becomes multi-cloud as it evolves over time. I mean, talking kind of years in the future. No, totally. And actually, uh, Tim Byers and I were having a Slack conversation last night about uh, sort of multi-clouds and cloud providers cooperating with each other to, to sell businesses. So, I'm with you there. What I was talking about is simply the, the context of, let's say, a customer-facing bot on a cloud provider where you, you're giving your data set to the cloud provider and working with their models. I, I don't think in that particular instance, like where it's customer service, uh, many businesses will want to do that on multiple platforms. Mm. But gee, within businesses, you could have different divisions who have no idea of you know, what the other side is doing. One will be on an NVIDIA platform in the future. One will be using Snowflake to maybe also go to NVIDIA. Some will be um, you know, on Amazon Web Services and uh, their particular uh, cloud-based AI training ground. So, I do see that for sure. Uh, as businesses get used to working with AI models, there, there probably isn't going to be a single winner, one-size solution. But for, for specific use cases, that I don't see like you're going to use six different models for one purpose. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, last quarter, 
was just when Threads was starting to pick up, and there was a lot of talk about it uh, in, in the earnings call, and a lot of excitement. This quarter, I think they mentioned it maybe maybe twice, maybe three times. So you've got about 100 million monthly actives. Who knows how active they really are? But Zuckerberg said it'll take a few years, but he thinks over time it could be a 1 billion person public conversation app that is more positive. Given that they're not really putting that much effort to it. Do you think that that's actually actually correct? It didn't seem like there was that much enthusiasm for Threads, at least at least this quarter. I, I think it's personal with his rival Elon Musk. I think he <laughs> wanted to say something about Threads just to for the commu community to understand that they're still investing in it. But more telling was. Zuckerberg spent more time talking about consumer to business conversations yes. and how that's really getting monetized. Specifically, the example he used WhatsApp in India, where he said some 60% of users have used a click to message uh, interaction with a business, meaning you, you see an, a business's ad and you click to message them because you need something. Uh, I was just in India and I certainly experienced that myself. That really is going to be a more money maker for uh, Meta is working on where businesses and consumers are interacting. I really don't see, at this point, the potential for Threads to be some kind of great monetization engine. Still, the user interface needs work from you know my experience, like browsing around, and I see as we're, we're talking, you, you seem to be agreeing with me, Deidre. So, yeah, I think that was just sort of like, oh, we're still there. Don't think we're not fully invested here, but look look where the money is going. It's going into like pumping up that WhatsApp revenue, ad revenue, which is blossoming, frankly. Yeah, yeah, the the ad revenue and the and the growth of those business services that we talked about. Well, one thing that wasn't in the earnings and you know that they can't really talk about is some of the regulatory concerns that that Meta's facing. This week, you had multiple lawsuits come out uh, from a variety of states and some some joint lawsuits saying the company violated consumer protection laws related to how it markets to to children and teens. Neither one of us is a lawyer. We don't know what happens next. But the thing I'm thinking about is the court of, of public opinion. Does this make a difference in how people start to consider using Meta's products and exposing their their children to it uh, when they when they when they turn 13 or even earlier? I mean, this is a, a perceptive question, Deidre. It's it's hard to remember now, but before the pandemic, before all the investment in Reality Labs before all this economic upheaval we had, Meta had the solid advertising business, and it competed with its peers, but seemed like whenever retail investors and institutional investors were plugging valuation stuff into their models, they always val valued Meta, then Facebook, a little less versus peers with similar models. It never quite traded at the premium that it should have. And why was that? It's because I believe Investors were really concerned with their inept handling of privacy since almost since day one, and that always seemed to hit their results. We saw lawsuits being filed in the past. We saw uh, Meta, then you know Facebook as as an organization, not really being the most stringent in terms of protecting users' privacy, and this seems to be sort of an ongoing issue with Meta. And you know, it might be one reason among some others. I, I still don't own shares myself. Uh, and part of that, too, is maybe 
an unease with the company if you really don't value your customer's privacy? Um, is, that, is that a company that I just personally want to invest in? I've never been able to get over that hump, and here it flares up again in some of um, the lawsuits that you've mentioned. So we'll see. I think that has the potential to be a drag on the, the valuation uh, in the future. Right now, all the attention has been on first the the plunging of capital into Reality Labs, and then this memory we had this year that, oh, wow, there's a great digital advertising business here, and Zuck is cutting cost, so the stock has benefited. But it's sort of like, now what? I mean, what happens from here? And, and this would play into anyone's valuation thesis, I think, because it's happened in the past, and it's hit that valuation in the past. Yeah, yeah. So much to consider with this one. Thanks for breaking it down with me, Asit. So much fun, Deidre. Thanks a lot for having me. The analysts you hear on the show have a whole other day job, providing premium coverage and recommendations for the Motley Fool suite of stock investing services. We're giving our listeners a discount on Motley Fool's flagship service. It's called Stock Advisor. If you're interested in more analysis from our team, two stock recommendations per month, and access to Stock Advisor's full scorecard of companies, visit www.fool.com slash MFM discount. Earlier this week, at a special event for Motley Fool One members, Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers interviewed Professor Melissa Schilling, author of the book Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. They talked about the fascinating things she discovered while researching some of the world's greatest thinkers. Melissa, thank you for being here. I think the mic is hot, so let's... Thank you for having me. It is hot. Yes, right. Let's talk about breakthrough innovation, and let's talk about maybe the most talked about breakthrough innovation right now, which is AI. So let's start there. Big, big picture first. Which companies, to your mind, and based on the research you're doing, are most threatened by AI, and which ones stand to profit the most, do you think, if you could name a couple? Oh, so you want specific company names? Well, or types of companies, and if, okay. you've, got, if you've got some specific names, I know there are a lot of people here that would be very interested in that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, I mean, obviously, NVIDIA. You can't talk about AI without talking about NVIDIA, and I think that that's a, a really interesting story, because I think they sort of accidentally end up poised in a perfect place to capitalize on AI, in that they were developing e extraordinary microprocessors and data processing capability for the video game industry and ended up ended up basically creating products that are perfectly positioned to now be a dominant player in AI, and they're doing a lot of the hard, heavy lifting of AI, I think. Also, any company that's working in cloud is going to be a big benefactor of AI, because what AI is going to allow us to do is utilize a lot more data, right? And a lot of companies that will adapt to AI uh, won't have to do it in-house. They're going to do it via the cloud and via cloud service providers who are helping them tap the capabilities of AI. Uh, without having to bring that capability in-house, which is something else I want to talk about AI, if, if possible. Yeah, okay. So one of the things I think is coolest about AI, first of all, let me say something that's a trap. It's a trap to look across industries and think this industry will be decimated, that industry will be decimated. I think on average, that's not what we're, we'll see. What we'll see is that AI is going to change 
what creates a winner in an industry versus a loser in an industry. Mm. And by that, I mean, I like to use an analogy. I'm a big fan of analogies because I think it makes it really concrete. But if we think about how spreadsheets affected the accounting profession, spreadsheets, like spreadsheet programs, like it was Lotus 1, 2, 3 in the beginning, sure. and now Excel, uh, they didn't put accountants out of business, right? There might maybe a few accountants who decided, oh, I don't want to work with spreadsheets. That's not for me. Those accountants probably ended up being... I need my ledgers. Those accountants. Yes, but they, those accountants who want to use a pencil and a big adding machine. Those accountants are probably gone. But for most accountants, what it did was it enabled them to do more, better, faster, more precise. So more regular updating, more precise measures, more segment accounting. And so that's what you want to look for. Who are the players in an industry who are going to pick up this tool and use it to do bigger, better, more exciting things? Who do you think then, so taking that as, as gospel here for a minute, who do you think then is the, the group that's threatened by AI, the ones that don't want to do more, bigger, better? Yeah. Uh, you could, in my business, being a professor, analyzing companies, you can spot them structurally sometimes. They tend to be companies that are older, that have really strong hierarchy and hierarchical norms. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit rigid. Counterintuitively, also, very decentralized companies will have a harder time responding to the shifts that are required by AI. We tend to think of decentralized companies tend to be promoted as like flexible and fast, and they're really good at incremental innovation. But decentralized companies where you don't have a lot of uh, authority at the center of the company have a harder time making big systemic changes fast. For a big systemic change fast, it's easier if you can have more uh, centralized control. So on the one hand, you want some centralized control to be able to make that change quickly, but you also want to have a company that embraces change, where there's no sacred cows, there's not a lot of power distance, everyone has a voice. Companies who are being proactive about saying, okay, how do we disrupt ourselves instead of how do we defend our business? That's, that's the positioning you want to look for. Also, frankly, companies that have some slack. So companies that have had has some free cash flow that is leaving them sitting on a bit of capital where they feel comfortable that they can make bigger, bolder moves. Because in a company operating on razor-thin margins in, yep. in an extremely competitive industry, they're, you know, they're looking a month out, a quarter out. It's very difficult for them to do big changes and to invest in those. They're going to perceive it as too risky. So that sounds like, and then we'll pivot to, to your book here, but that sounds like you just said industries where the profit margins are thin, you're looking out a quarter, maybe not five years. So that sounds like retail. That sounds like consumer products. That sounds like in, in some industries that maybe are a little bit more industrial. You think that's fair? Well, again, I don't, I don't think it will serve us to label a whole industry okay. as going to be a loser or a winner in AI. But the structure of the company itself. The structure. I think retail is a great example of an industry that will be completely transformed by AI because it's a data-heavy industry where you can really sure. utilize that data. I think the ones that adopt AI early and aggressively are going to vastly outperforms the one, perform the ones that don't. 
That makes a lot of sense. Well, this is interesting, so let's let's pivot then to breakthrough innovation, because you wrote about this in your book, which is fantastic. I really think um, everybody should read this, particularly if you are investing in any way and in breakthrough innovation. This book identifies in a very thoughtful and narrative-driven way some of the greatest breakthrough innovators in history. And I'm sure you are very familiar with the names. So I'll name a couple. You mentioned Thomas Edison. You mentioned Albert Einstein. You mentioned Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. Marie Curie. Uh, Marie you always Curie. have to include some women in there. Yeah. Yes, Marie Curie, which is a fascinating story as well. How should we be thinking about, as, as investors, some of the key traits that you identify here. I'll, I'll focus in on one, which is separateness. So I'd love for you to maybe define that a little bit. These breakthrough innovators have a view of separateness, and you define it in a very interesting way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And let me first preface this by saying, before I started this project, I was working on a bunch of stuff related to networks, social networks, uh, collaborative networks among firms. And so I really had this ex-ante expectation that and innovators would turn out to be hyper-connected. Yep. They would have these really big, robust, replete you know, social networks that would enable them to get lots of ideas. And so then I was very surprised to actually find that most of the serial breakthrough innovators in my study were, uh, you, you couldn't help but call them anything else. They were, they were de separate. They were socially detached. And sometimes it was a personality trait, like extreme introversion or uh, anthrophobia. Sometimes it was, in Edison's case, he was deaf. Uh, sometimes it was periods of depression or sickness, like in the case of Curie or uh, Tesla. Sometimes it almost looks like Asperger's. That's where you start, you know, Elon Musk has said he has Asperger's. Einstein clearly had some sort of uh, a little bit of spectrum disorder. But that separateness that it gave them, that sense that they were different and that they didn't quite fit in with the social world, ended up being incredibly liberating because it meant, first, that they weren't um, they weren't socialized to buy into all the norms that everybody else had bought into. And norms can be constraining, right? Paradigms can be constraining. People who are extremely well indoctrinated or trained in a particular area have a harder time coming up with a radical innovation than people who haven't been indoctrinated in that way. So part of it is what you've been exposed to and what you've learned. If you've learned really well what the, what the field thinks works and doesn't work, that can trap you. And so in some sense, uh, these people who weren't part of the norm didn't have that trap. But there's a, there's a second side to it, and that is that a lot of these people were also very rebellious, and that was part of the separateness. They had this view that, I'm not part of the social world, its rules don't apply to me. And so they were sometimes difficult people, or people who didn't care that much what you thought of them. And so we certainly see that with Marie Curie, we see it with Albert Einstein. See it with Steve Jobs in the Steve reality Jobs. distortion field. Yep, and you see it with Elon Musk. He does not care what you think about him. Now the way that unfolds is, is uh, multifaceted, shall we say. So there's some ways in which he comes across as kind of a jerk, right? Like when he manages, you know, he's, he's not a warm, fuzzy manager at all, and he has said things on Twitter that he shouldn't have said, in my opinion, but... I think that's fair. Yeah, and, uh, and it's because he's a low self-monitor, and he doesn't care that much what you think of him. But that ends up serving him, because, you know, most breakthrough ideas, the first time you see a breakthrough idea, you're generally not going to react favorably to it at all, because it's going to feel weird. It's going to look jarring. It, it's called, it's a breakthrough because it breaks with something. It breaks with your expectations, or it breaks with the way we do things, or what we believe. And so breakthrough innovations tend to be kind of ugly, 
and unsettling. And people who want the approval of others are going to have a real hard time both introducing those and sticking with them in the face of criticism. But if you are someone like Musk, he believes in his ideas. He doesn't care whether you do. He has confidence that he will make it work whether you think you can or anyone else can or not. So he sticks with these ideas even when other people say that's dumb or that's impossible or what are you thinking right. and it's a it's a kind of it's almost a disagreeableness but it's a very beneficial disagreeableness i mean let's transpose this on ourselves and the Motley Fool, but all of us individually as investors. So how can we foster a little breakthrough innovation in ourselves as investors, as people, as you know, people in the world? How do we do this for ourselves? So uh, there's probably three things I think are most effective okay. that you can do right away. One is when you have an idea that you think is a, a breakthrough innovation idea, don't show it to people early. Don't seek early feedback. Because there's only two kinds of feedback you'll get. You'll either get negative feedback or you'll get people blowing smoke up your your backside because, <laughs> because they want to make you happy. You won't get, you probably won't get the, the useful feedback you were hoping for. You have to have enough conviction that, that if you believe it's a really cool idea, pursue it and elaborate it on your own and wait for a while before you expose it to other people. That's one thing I would do. Okay. Uh, actually, along with that, I'm actually going to get sneak foreign here. All right, good. Um, forget about credentializing norms. One of the things you learn over and over again when you study breakthrough innovators is that they're very often outsiders. They may not have had the PhD that you were expecting or the, they may not have worked for the company that you were expecting. Those credentializing norms are also homogenizing norms, right? So, so be be confident in your ability to enter an industry that you aren't trained in, right? If you want to do something in an industry and you don't have a, the right degree for that area, don't let that stop you and don't make that stop other people. Uh, the third one, find your own idealistic mission. Find those things that you feel like would be worth doing even if nobody pays you for it or pats you on the head for it, right? Because once you find those, that's going to make you work harder, think bigger, move faster. That's really, really powerful. Oh, and then I had a fourth one, and I just forgot what it was. No, that's okay. I mean, what I think what's interesting in, in what you just said there is be maybe a bit of stubborn willingness to pursue the things that are very interesting to you. If you were, when you're looking at companies right now, or maybe in some of your own work with startups, is there any kind of identifying characteristic of, say, like a stubborn willingness to do something that really stands out to you when you do your consulting work? Maybe a, a company you've run across or a founder you've run across? You know, when you have a manager, for example, that understands what the big picture is and is willing to let go of current business to get to that big picture, that's actually really powerful. And that probably sounds really vague. I'll give you a great, I'll give you a specific example from a street just down the, a company just down the street here, uh, Bloomberg Corporation. Hmm. And I'll tell you something they were doing wrong and then something they did to turn it around. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah. Am I allowed to talk about Bloomberg? Yes, you can. Okay. We, we got five <laughs> minutes, we can, we can do it. It'll be really fast. So Bloomberg was founded basically because Michael Bloomberg figured out that he could lay these computer lines between investment companies and get more information faster 
faster to people, right? Instead of having bond runners, you could get the bond prices just beamed to you basically over, over a computer line. And so his whole original success and competitive advantage was quantity of data with speed, those two things. And what they would produce on their monitors were beautiful, you know, visualizations and things that had been, you know, data that had been curated and calculated that humans would perceive with their eyes, right? Investment bankers would look at that and process that data with their eyes. That was the whole business model. And what that meant was that when, when, when mobile was just a baby, when smartphones were just coming up, it was very unattractive to Bloomberg, right? It, a mobile solution was not attractive because it was going to be not as fast, not as much data on a little bitty screen, right? Which was just, so it wasn't very sexy to the company. There were not a lot of people who wanted to work in mobile because the, the metric of performance at Bloomberg had been speed, speed and data, cool algorithms, right? And that just didn't compute with mobile. And we did this exercise where we took apart the performance dimensions of their industry and thought about where the, the payoff was, where the utility payoff was for each of these dimensions. And they came out of that realizing, oh my God, we have to go mobile, right? Because mobile is where the, the room for, for more utility was, right? So they'd actually basically maxed out speed from a human perspective, right? I'm like, I asked them at one point, how fast are humans? You know, if your data's coming even faster, can investment bankers process that even faster? And I got a lot of blank stares to that question. But, <laughs> but there, we had this meeting and a big argument broke out. They ended up moving 60 people over to the mobile division and invented an award-winning uh, mobile application that was crucial to the success of the company. So that willingness to tear down parts of their own business model to move forward is super, super important. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.